Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're pairing the Palm Sunday story in John 12, 12 to 19, with the continuation of the crucifixion story in John 19, 16b to 22. We wrestle with the image of kingship in John's gospel, with the crowds hailing Jesus as the King of the Jews, even as Pilate sneeringly executes him as the king of the Jews. We contrast Rome's militant view of kingship with Zechariah's vision of an anti-militarist king, ultimately embodied in Jesus. We talk about the empire's way of violence and Jesus' way of self-giving love that refuses to exercise power over others, but instead lifts up even the ones who have betrayed him. And we discuss the danger these texts have posed throughout the centuries especially for our Jewish siblings, and recognize the urgency of biblical interpretation that brings more love to the world rather than more violence. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am doing well. Indeed. I know that you like to record these as though we exist outside the time-space <laughs> continuum. But yeah. I'm going to break that rule no! for a minute to tell you it's Purim! Hey! I just ate so many cookies right before we started recording. <laughs> awesome. You look a little jittery. Um, a little jittery. Yeah, they were very sweet. So what does Purim involve in your place? Purim in my place involves... On a, on a nearby weekend, we have a carnival for the kids. It's really just like a, it's really, there's nothing religious about it. It's just a straight up carnival and you wear costumes and you yeah. play games and you win prizes. Like it's just fun. And for my costume, this will surprise you not at all. I was a hermit who lives in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I put like dirt on my face and like yeah. sticks in my hair. And I had some kind of like sort of animal printy kind of ensemble that I found nice. at Goodwill. Yeah, I lived in the woods. Was that a sort of like a statement of your inner self that is re- resistant yeah. to having to be alone? Yeah, it was like the other, another Amy in the multiverse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like this is not my life and it's not that I want it to be my life. I don't yeah. necessarily want it to be my life, but like I'm curious. I'm curious about it. Yeah. So anyway, we had a carnival and then last night we... Read the Megillah, which is the book of Esther, Yeah, which we did some of it chanting and some of it read in Hebrew, but like, you know, reading it like it means something, like read with voices and parts and, you know, all that stuff. And in between each book, there was a spiel, which is like a funny, it was really funny. The congregants wrote it and put it together play that sort of like takes parts of the story or retells it in a different way. So this was like the king... Ahasuerus, who was in the beginning of the pandemic and like the signs <laughs> of his wealth were all, he didn't just have all the streaming services. He had like the premium streaming oh, services yeah. and 
he didn't want to be interrupted from watching, <laughs> you know, all of every series in one sitting. It, it was very, I thought it was very funny. It was good. That's it was awesome. very good. Yeah. All right. So we are approaching Easter. Mm-hmm. We're making our way kind of slowly toward Easter. We've got today's text, and then we're going to have a good Friday special episode. And then the Easter recording is the one up after that. So the text for today is the text for Palm Sunday. And the narrative lectionary has actually given us choices about uh, what text we should read. So we have a choice of either 19, 16b to 22, which picks up right where we left off last time, Mm -hmm. or... 12 to 27, which jumps back in time to the actual entry, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, according to the Gospel of John, which occurs way, way back in John chapter 12. So we're going to do them both, but not exactly as they're written. So we're going to do John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, and then John 19, 16b to 22. I think that's a good compromise. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we've been talking back and forth quite a lot, actually, about what's going on in this, especially in this crucifixion trial scene about Jesus being a king. Mm -hmm. And this text back in John chapter 12, I think, shed some light on how John, the gospel writer, is thinking about Jesus in relationship to king. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause even though we're in the middle of a verse between 19a where we ended last time and 19b right. where we're going to pick up later we're just going to do yeah. like a flashback uh if you were if you were doing that yeah you know the film setting of this this would be a flashback moment it'd be like a smoke machine a fog <laughs> machine <laughs> right right yeah. that's how you know it's the past yeah yeah uh so we're gonna flashback to john 12 and then we're gonna flash forward again to john 19 yeah. Sound all Good. Right? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so we're in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. We, act, we skipped backwards seven chapters, mm-hmm. but really we've only, we've moved back in the lifetime of Jesus by about four or five days, something like that. Yeah. Before we read that, are there things we need to know to prepare us for the reading of this little section? Here's just a little to like rewind our minds in the plot. When, when we get to chapter 12, Lazarus has already been raised from the dead. So that just has happened. Just in the previous chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in the, right. It has just happened. There has already been all this like consternation on behalf of the religious authorities that this has happened. And this, this statement that, that they felt they needed to put Jesus to death because because it created a threat for the well-being of the Jewish community. Yeah. And then it's it's just about Passover, right? So the chapter starts saying it's six days before Passover. Jesus goes to visit Lazarus and his sisters, and he is then moving from Bethany into Jerusalem. So I think what— what I would raise up is like raise up, get it? <laughs> There's so <laughs> many ways, so many get it's that could be yeah. in the raise up. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Jesus has spent time with Lazarus's family. It's almost Passover, and he's about to go into Jerusalem. I think that was really nice. Can <laughs> can you just remind us? We've said a little bit about Passover itself. Is there anything just about? I mean, I'm not necessarily like the meaning of Passover, but just like setting the scene for us about like what is going on in Jerusalem at this time. 
I mean, Passover is, is, I guess I would say two things. One is that we need to remember that with these festival holidays, there was an expectation, and as far as we know, really a practice for Jews to make every effort to come from wherever they were to Jerusalem in order to participate in the offerings that are made at the temple. That was like the the primary thing that was done at that time. Needless to say, maybe not needless, but I'll say it anyway, this is not how Passover is celebrated anymore. Yeah. So that might sound foreign even to our Jewish listeners, but that was the way, that was the way things were done. And so there was this huge, 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 huge crowd of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims yeah. coming to Jerusalem for the holiday. And by this point, there's a Jewish community sort of spread all over the ancient world, all around the Mediterranean basin. Yeah. North, south, east. And Jerusalem's not a big place, so I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what it actually looked like on the ground, other than like Disney World. Yeah, on a, you know, good weather day. <laughs> yeah. or I mean, I don't. I don't even know. You know, Josephus tells us in Jewish Antiquities that his number is something like two point eight million people in Jerusalem for the holiday. Now, presumably, that's an exaggeration, but I mean, if, the fact that you could even come up with a number three million. And that seems like not completely unreasonable. Like that, there were lots and lots and lots and lots of people yeah. in Jerusalem. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would just want to draw out that I think you have mentioned before as we've been reading, John, is, you know, Passover celebrates really the birth of the people Israel by yeah. passing out of slavery, out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt, through the water, through this miraculous act of God and coming out on the other side as a people, a mixed multitude that has become a people and figuring out how to exist as a people with God as their king in defiance sometimes of, yeah. you know, the the local politics. And so it's it's a very weighty moment theologically and don't know. I've heard suggestions like maybe maybe there were political overtones to yeah. it at different times in history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important, Amy. And, you know, that last piece, even if Passover itself didn't have, I mean, but I think it did, sort of nationalistic mm-hmm. overtones that are a little dangerous for relations between Judea and Rome. Just the fact that you've got so many people from all over the world who are all gathered together. Like the, there's a popular power that's there. And, you know, there, there was an increased military presence in Jerusalem. I think we talked about last time. Pilate would move from Caesarea Maritima over to Jerusalem for Passover and bring soldiers with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg have this book in which they, they talk about like Jesus is coming in one side of Jerusalem on his colt and, or donkey and see, uh, Pilate's coming in the other way. Um, on with his military processional, I, I think that's actually a little bit exaggerated. But the but the point is well made that there is this sort of militarism on Rome's side because they're worried about the possibility of rebellion on the Jewish yeah. side. Yeah, and we we read if you read through Josephus, you get some indications of the kind of things that happen sometimes at Passover. You know, there, it was kind of a tense kind of a tense moment. Mm-hmm. My favorite story about that, it, uh, Josephus tells us that one time there was a Roman soldier who basically mooned the Jewish people. <laughs> like he pulled up his little tunic and like showed him his behind. 
And um, they did not appreciate that. It was deeply offensive. They, really? So there was a rebellion that started. Kind of sadly, it ended up like a lot of people actually died in that one. So maybe I shouldn't be laughing. But the fact that it all started with a moon to me. I mean, I still think even though this holiday has particular sort of nationalistic and political overtones, these moments on the calendar that have real religious resonance to them, it's easy for them to sort of, you know, I don't know. The phrase that comes to mind is jump the shark, although I'm sure that's not the right (laughs) phrase. It's easy for them to sort of like, it's like they have this hum about them of energy and it's, you know, I, I know still that when people are in, in moments where they feel deep connection to their religious beliefs and then something happens that, that feels a little bit at odds with their belief, like violence is easy yeah. to yeah. erupt from that. And so I feel that sort of like buzzing of this yeah. text. Yeah, I think that's right. That's not at all what jump the shark means, <laughs> but, but your point no. is well made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not... I. Yeah, that Jump the Shark comes from an episode of Happy Days where Fonzie is skiing in his leather jacket and he, I forget why, but there's a shark he has to ju- literally jump over on, a, on skis behind a boat and he does it. And then that was known as the episode where Happy Days kind of went off the rails and like it was never the same after that. Right. <laughs> so it goes off the rails. That's jumping. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're like, yeah. Mm, That's mm. not what it means. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. It's yeah. okay. It's great. All right. Yeah. So when we're picking up on this text, then we should see Jerusalem this way. There's 3 million people there, according to Josephus. Mm-hmm. There is this sort of buzz going on. There is a heightened Roman military presence. There is some tension happening. There is a major, major holiday that's about to be celebrated, which celebrates the freedom of the people from Egypt and potentially Mm -hmm. from all other oppressors. Like this is a, this is a moment. Like there is a moment and putting it together with this moment right after the raising of Lazarus and having Jesus walk into Jerusalem is, it's a lot. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, so I'm reading John chapter 12, verses 12 to 15, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So that's a short little text, but there's a lot going on in there, both, you know, symbolically and also intertextual allusions to various Mm -hmm. things. So Mm -hmm. let's take these kind of one at a time and see where we end up. The first detail that's there is about palm branches. So the people are taking palm branches and they're going out to meet him. What is your take on the significance of palm branches? I mean... So uh, as far as I know, this is the, John is the only one of the gospels that mentions palm in particular. Like they might have branches in the other ones, but it's not specifically this, this kind of branch. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. What I can tell you is that I associate palm branches with the holiday Sukkot, which is another of the pilgrimage festivals where, you know, Jews would all be coming to Jerusalem. And as part of that festival, you put together four different species of branches into this Uh. thing called a lulav, and you shake the lulav in different directions. This is one of those symbols that has been interpreted a thousand different ways. 
has something to do with God's sovereignty, maybe over all directions. Oh, interesting. Maybe. But I don't know if any of that is intended to be imported here or if if John is confused about when when these branches are usually used or if really they're just a nice shady thing <laughs> that was yeah. available. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. One of the things that's interesting is, you know, palms don't actually grow in Jerusalem. They do grow down the hill in Jericho. So I think there's been some effort in importing palms hmm. into this story, either by the author or by the people. So I don't think it was just the case that they were like, ooh, we need something to grab, so let's right. grab some let's palms. Get, let's grab some palms, yeah. That theory that maybe John has confused Passover and Sukkot, I think is kind of an interesting one. You know, John seems to have some familiarity with Jewish traditions. Maybe he was or had been Jewish himself. But I do think there is also some, you know, interpretation going on. And so I think that's kind of an interesting idea. We also see palms getting used in in 2 Maccabees in relation to the rededication of the temple by mm-hmm. the Hasmoneans, by Judas Maccabeus and his mm-hmm, family mm-hmm. after they defeat Antiochus and the Greeks. And palm fronds are waved in that sort of nationalist celebration. Mm. Palm, palms appeared on the coins of the Hasmoneans. And in another hundred years after Jesus, they're going to appear on the coins of Bar Kokhba, Bar Kokhba mm. who mm-hmm. has a rebellion. So in thinking about what we were thinking about before with like the yeah. political tensions here, I think there's one way to read it, which is John is trying to heighten the political significance mm-hmm. of Jesus mm-hmm. as he comes into Jerusalem mm-hmm. exactly by having the people ha- hail him in the way that, you know, with the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans and the revolt of Bar Kokhba were familiar t- to them. That is really helpful background. That's really helpful background. So as Jesus comes in, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the King of Israel, which is at least in part a quotation of Psalm 118. Yeah. What? Do you think John or the people, or I don't, however you want to talk about it, what is the significance of Psalm 118 being engaged here? Mm. That's such a, you know, I, I, I looked up Psalm 118 in preparation for this. And to be honest, I went up spending so much time studying Psalm, <laughs> Psalm 118 that I had trouble finishing the rest of it. This is, I mean, it's like the Psalm of all Psalms, like I just feel like every other line in this psalm is so central to my religious life as a Jewish person and mm. to to Jewish liturgy as it is now. So, I, so I don't know. I'll just sort of so it, it, it honestly, I'll say, felt like pretty pretty weird to have this line placed here in the New Testament. And I know, again, like I know this is a historical context, and these are Jewish people, but like. This, you know, Ana Adonai Hoshiana, like save us, is like the plea of like the holiest days of the year. So to see it in here as like, look, it means Jesus is king is really yeah. mind bending. Yeah. But but I digress. You know, there's there's a lot in this psalm that again, like I'm not totally sure how much to import. This is the psalm that has the stone that the builders rejected has become yeah. the cornerstone. And, you know, this, this sense that, that God is, 
God is your salvation, your one and only, the one and only option in the face of all kinds of ways that enemies might cut you down. So I guess putting those things together like this, like recognition that God is the the only option, right? The only thing that can save you from whatever is around you with the idea of that. I don't know if they're pulling on the idea of the stone that's been rejected as the cornerstone, but it seems like one, like a Christian reader might want to apply that to the idea of Jesus. It, it absolutely gets applied to Jesus throughout, throughout the New Testament. I, I don't know if it's been in view right here, but else, other places it certainly is. In other places it is. Yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, it seems to equate those two, putting those two ideas together, you know, God's our only salvation and also... You know, in the psalm, I see it as viewing the the Jewish people, the outsiders, not the not the divine one, who is the one who's been uh, rejected. Yeah. But here, I feel like it's it could be putting those ideas together in a just really really different way than it it appears on Psalm one eighteen by itself. Yeah. Now that's really helpful, Amy, and I think that's you know at some level I. And I, I think it'd be interesting to sort of work through the psalm and see how that works. But even at the most mundane level in Psalm 118.26, at least in the Christian versification, mm-hmm. the one who enters in the Lord's name is blessed. We bless mm-hmm. you all from the Lord's house. Mm-hmm. You know, the one who enters in the name of the Lord in the psalm is the worshiper, right? It's yeah. it's you and me. It's the It's the people. And here in... John's narrative, when it's in the mouth of the people, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a reference to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So Jesus has supplanted the worshiper mm-hmm. or has come to embody the worshiper, I guess, if you think about word made flesh and Jesus is one of, uh, you know, but there's even in that simple line, there's this whole reworking of where does salvation come from and who comes into the house of the Lord and, you know. Yeah. And, and to build on what you're saying, I feel like you know, Jesus sort of like takes the, takes the place of the worshiper or the, you know, reader, but also in some ways takes the place of the, the one that brings salvation. That's right too. Yeah. You know, like Jesus winds up kind of in both. Yeah. Roles. As he should, according to the logic of the gospel of John. Sure. It's fascinating to listen to how you're sort of developing that. I think that's, I think that's right on. You mentioned the word Hoshiana. Hmm. That word has always confused me because it does on the sort of surface. I mean, the plain sense of it is save us. Mm-hmm. It, it gets used a lot in contexts that seem to be contexts of praise, like right here. So you mentioned the, the word Hoshiana, Hosanna, which they're crying mm-hmm. out as Jesus is coming into the city. Based on your experience, your tradition, like what is the significance of calling Hoshiana, in what context would you do that? Or why would you do that? I mean, I have personally only encountered it really in these sort of like deeply pious, like really sort of like using it at face value, like save us, even if it's, you know, in the context of worship, it's mostly, you know, save us from ourselves. Yeah. Or, you know, save us from the the forces of the world or, you know, not necessarily like, you know, save me from this plane that's about to crash. I haven't, Baruch Hashem have not been in that situation. So I, I don't know what would come <laughs> yeah. out of my lips. So it's really 
interesting to think about what might be meant here if you're offering this cry as a as a honorific or a welcoming or yeah. like is is this some expression that like I I don't I don't know is this some expression that this is this is salvation riding in on a donkey or am I importing that because I kind of assume that's what the author's going for how do you understand the use of that phrase here. Yeah, that's so helpful, Amy. You know, growing up as a kid who, like, the only time I ever heard Hosanna was on Palm Sunday, really. And so I didn't know what it meant, but I thought it was like, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> woohoo, kind of, kind of a thing. And when I started studying Hebrew and I realized what you're saying, Hosanna means, like, save us, it sort of, it transformed my understanding of Palm Sunday, actually, quite a bit, because it is exactly Jesus's saving capacity that they're calling out. And when you combine mm-hmm. it with the waving of the palm fronds and the here yeah. comes a, some sort of a king figure, we're crying yeah. out, save us. You know, I don't know that save us and praise necessarily need to be in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. I think you absolutely could be crying out, here's mm-hmm. the one who is going to save us. Like, yeah, save us. Instead of this sort of anguished cry. Mm-hmm. But, and I do think it is exactly in that cry, there's a recognition that their people realize there is something from which they need saving. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly what they think that is, whether it's the Mm -hmm. Romans or, I mean, I don't think they're crying out like save us from our sins, even Mm -hmm. though maybe that's what John's going to try to do with it. Mm -hmm. So, but, so hanging on to that sense that what they're, what they are crying out is save us. And they think that in some way or another, Jesus is the one who can save them, even if maybe they don't understand exactly the way that's going to play out. They have a sense that it, that it is indeed the case. I, I love that. And, you, and I'm sitting here quietly because now I'm thinking, and then the next line mm. is the king of Israel. Yes. And so I'm already sifting through how— you know, you know, before I, I read it and I was like, the king of Israel, that's not in the psalm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking of the ways in, in which that background that you just offered sort of ties, you know, ties in again to these like palms that they're waving and the call to save us, you know, lead us, deliver us, and now calling, now calling Jesus king of Israel. Yeah. And we have struggled with this word king for the last few weeks. And, you know, Jesus and Pilate have talked about it. And Pilate and the Jewish leaders have talked about it. We've talked about how back in chapter six, the people tried to make Jesus a king and Jesus ran away. Mm-hmm. Here we've got the people directly calling Jesus a king. I think, I mean, I, that's, yeah, they're calling Jesus yeah. a king. Blessings yeah. on the king. Like, here you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't say, yep, that's, I'm the king. But nor does he run away. You know, right. like he seems to at least not protest against this name for him. Yeah, yeah. And you're exactly right. It's not in the psalm any place. And so the people are in John's gospel are naming Jesus, the king, the one who has the capacity to save us. I don't know what, I mean, this is an important moment in, in the gospel of John and in what John's trying to do via, via kingship. I think we can continue to develop that as we read on in the text, but is there anything to say at this moment other than that's important? I mean, I think what's coming to mind as I, 
as I listen to you sorting through these these different ideas and images that are being pulled together here is, you know, the, the texts that we're about to look at in verse 15 that also come from other places in the Hebrew yeah. Bible, you know, your your king is coming, sitting, you know, this idea of like having the humble king coming in and just riding a regular old donkey. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that because that is obviously part of what's happening I mean, in this text. I, yeah, I think that that, I think... Attaching the kingship first to Psalm 118, in my mind, and I don't know that the people saying it would have thought this, or maybe it's just John at work here, but it it stretches the boundaries of what king could mean. Yeah. You know, because in Psalm 118, the person who's saving you is God. It's not a king. Yeah. And so the kinds of saving God can do, a king can also save you in some ways, but it's a really different kind of saving. So I feel like placing Jesus between these two different references muddies up that category or expands it. Or uh, Israel was expecting another king to arrive at some point, right? And and that was the Mashiach. That was the the anointed one. The Messiah was a, a king, a regular old king who is human and going to protect them from their enemies and, you know, fight the good fight and bring peace to the land. Yeah. And this is, yeah, by, by putting him in the place of the divine instead of the place of the human king in Psalm 118, it really messes with that a little bit. That's really helpful. And, you know, you're talking about messianic expectation. And I think that's right. That, I mean, that is right. That, Many Jews at the time were expecting a, a king who would come and restore Israel. Sometimes this gets played as the Jewish people were expecting a militant king, and instead what they get is Jesus, who is a non-militant king. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that binary is exactly helpful, mm-hmm. because what I really think, and you were allude, alluding to this, is that the Jewish people had different expectations about what that king might be like. And some of them were expecting a militant king, and some of them were expecting something else. And this invocation of the king on a donkey's colt is actually a quotation, as you well know, from Zechariah, prophet 9, 9 is where it comes Mm -hmm. from, which describes the king humble and riding on a donkey on a colt Mm -hmm. full of a donkey. And then it goes on to say, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations his dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So right there in Zechariah, you already have a king who's exactly his role is to come humbly and peacefully. And the way that he makes war is by destroying the implements of war, right? So he's, he's not a militant king. He's an, actually an anti-militant king. Mm-hmm. And so that's in the Jewish expectation, or at least in one branch of it anyway. So Jesus is coming, I think, in, in this moment to say, Okay, to the extent that I'm a king, I'm that kind of king that Zechariah mm-hmm. was expecting, mm-hmm. not this other militant kind of king that some of you zealots and rebels might be expecting. So it's not like Jewish versus Christian. It's like pacifist versus yeah. militarist or something like that. That's so cool. So are you thinking, now I'm seeing this more as like a scene unfolding in the story instead of just sort of like a moment that's being reported. So the people call out this thing to Jesus, and now I'm hearing it as 
Jesus wants to communicate something about the kind of leader or the kind of king that he is. And and so he finds a young donkey. It's yes. not just like Jesus got tired. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a donkey. But that it's, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I appreciate you putting that fine point on it too. Because in the other gospels, Jesus has the donkey before he comes into town. Mm-hmm. There's this whole thing about how he goes and gets it. But in John's gospel, it's not that way. It's he comes into town and they bless, they're shouting Hosanna blessings on the king of Israel. So he finds a donkey and sits on it. I think that's exactly right. He says, okay, you've got, you've got this far, but now let mm-hmm. me show you by sitting let on this donkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the very next really line in verse 16 is his disciples didn't understand these things. Mm-hmm. After he was glorified, they remembered and they understood. Yeah. And to me, that seems really important. So as this thing is unfolding, nobody understands the significance of what Jesus just did. Yeah. But once he's been crucified and resurrected, now they can look back on this scene and say, oh, he was talking about pacifist king who's going to give his life, not not threaten violence. Right. Right. Cut down systems of violence. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Today, I want to tell you about a group called the Bible Worm Collaborative, which you can join through our Patreon. The Bible Worm Collaborative is a group of Bible Worm listeners who meet together to collaborate on our interpretations of the biblical text. Once a month, we meet on Zoom to discuss the narrative lectionary text for the following month. Amy and I often draw on the questions and insights of the collaborative, giving you a chance to shape the direction of the podcast. Starting this month, Bible Worm Collaborative members also have access to a new, exclusive Discord group where you can discuss the text with other collaborative members, offering insights, asking questions, and sharing resources. Amy and I check in regularly to offer our thoughts as well. Collaborative members also receive early access to episodes, a terrific Bible Worm sticker, and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. You can become a member of the Bible Worm Collaborative by joining our Patreon for just $14 a month. See patreon.com slash podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. Okay, I just kind of <laughs> summarized verse 16. I'm just going to pick up in 17 and read to 19. Okay. The crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were testifying about him. That's why the crowd came to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign that he had done. Therefore, the Pharisees said to each other, See, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world is following him. So in this gospel, John points us back now to Lazarus as the reason for the crowds. Lazarus Mm -hmm. is not even in the other gospels. So something Mm -hmm. different is happening in John than was happening in the other ones. How do you think about that? I, I think it's so interesting that at this, this is a point where it goes back and says, that's why the crowd was there, you know? Mm-hmm in the first place. And I think it really, you know, you have said numerous times over the weeks that like the quote unquote problem that that the religious authorities are worried about is all about the raising of Lazarus. And it's not that I disagreed with that per se, but this is really sort of underscoring. Yeah. That was the thing that ignited the people, you know, and I'm thinking back to when we read that text together and and I kept talking about how painful it was that Jesus waits intentionally does not go, but says like, this is what has to happen. It has to happen this way. Yeah. And now I can see all of that sort of playing out that yes, that 
<laughs> surprise, surprise, Jesus was right. It, <laughs> you know, that it, that it has to happen in that way, and that is what, that's what ignites the people. And also the Pharisees are right that it's ignited the people. Yeah, that's what they said was going to happen at the end of chapter 11, and that's what's happening now. Yes. So they saw yeah. it correctly. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me, especially after last week's conversation, is just that, you know, what the Pharisees had said in chapter 11 is the people are going to respond to the power of life. And then the people here are responding to the power of life. And they're saying, mm-hmm. this guy has pa- the power to wield life instead of death. And we, we want to be a part of that. And yet we know, because we've, we've been ahead in the gospel, how that's going to get twisted by the leadership or by fear or by the way humans are. I don't know how you want to talk about yeah. it. So that by the end of the gospel, well, by the end of chapter 19 anyway, yeah. the power of death has defeated the power of life, at least, at least for a moment. Mm-hmm. This moment feels so hopeful to me right here in chapter 12. And in some ways, like doing the flashback thing is kind of helpful because yeah. you're like, well, I know where we're getting ready to go, um, which yeah. is that they're going to end up wielding death to defeat the, the one who can wield life and how tragic that is. Yeah. And how true to human nature, I think. Yeah. Yes. All right. Anything else we want to say about this Palm Sunday text before we jump back to the pilot narrative? I want to jump, I think. Now having this, having all this sort of in my mind, I want to, I want to go back and see where we are. Okay. So we're going to move then back to where we were a week ago. Picking up in John chapter 19, verse 16b, is there anything that we need to remind ourselves about before we dig in? I mean, I think the only thing that's just really running through my mind is that there's there's been this whole conversation about, you know, what, what exactly is the crime Jesus is being accused of, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, first it's that he claimed to be the son of God— and then the religious authorities say everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor as a way to get Pilate to act. And then, you know, when they bring Jesus out, they say to the Jews, here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? And the priests say, we have no king but the emperor. Like there's a there's a lot of, a lot a of lot king, of king. Mm-hmm. language and it will continue like that. I guess that's that's an important thing to hold in uh, in conversation with that text we just read. I think that's right. I mean, that is exactly right. And there, you know, there was that whole conversation that Pilate had with Jesus where he said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, mm. you said that. <laughs> I didn't say yeah, that. Right. And then, so you are a king. And we talked about that sort of like, oh, Jesus is a king, but he's not a king. And his kingdom is from, right. Jesus says, my kingdom is from somewhere else. And we talked about like, okay, can you be a, have a kingdom, but not be a king? And so there's there's just been this whole yeah all the way back in the chapter eighteen there's been this kind of whole complicated discussion about kingship I think that I think that's important background yeah okay so just right before this as you were saying Pilate has brought Jesus out and said do you want me to crucify your king and they say we have no king but the emperor and so Pilate has handed Jesus over so picking up in sixteen b the soldiers took Jesus prisoner carrying his cross by himself he went out to a place called Skull Place in Aramaic, Golgotha. That's where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a public notice written and posted on the cross. It read, 
Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Therefore the Jewish chief priests complained to Pilate, Don't write, The King of the Jews, but This man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. Hmm. Okay, so the beginning of this text is Jesus carrying his cross out to Golgotha. Mm-hmm. Any, any responses to that image of Jesus carrying out the cross and being crucified between the two criminals? Oh, that was just a lot of things all in there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. I have two two things that sort of jump out to me in the description of him carrying the cross, and I don't know if one is more important than the other. Mm. But one is, at least in my translation, it says carrying the cross by himself. Mm-hmm. And so the aloneness of it is sort of tragic in its own yeah. way. Yeah. And then it is another le- level of tragic or another layer of tragic tragedy that he is carrying the means for his own destruction. Yeah. It, it, the image reminded me a little bit of these images you see from world war two and, and certainly other wars too, besides world war two, where Jews are digging the pits that their bodies will fall into when they're going to be shot, you know, and just that sort of extra, like twist of the knife that's like you're going to help facilitate the your your suffering and destruction. Does one or the other one of those stand out to you more? The aloneness or the twistedness of it, or do you think they just they go hand in hand as just like this is really the worst. This is just the worst thing. That's such a poignant and powerful way of describing that, Amy. The, you know, this was the Roman practice. As we understand it, they, mm-hmm. they had the vertical poles sort of in place. And then the one who was to be crucified would carry the crossbeam. And then that would be attached. They would be attached to the crossbeam. Mm-hmm. And then that would be attached to the vertical pole. And the Romans, I think, did this exactly for what you're describing. To humiliate, to turn the knife, as you say, to add one more painful insult, you have to carry the means of your own execution. And I think that's exactly what the Romans intended. And I think John's picking up on the cruelty of that practice. Yeah. The aloneness one, I think is that's, I'm, I'm, I'm having to think about that too, because absolutely Jesus has sent home his disciples. He has been denied by Peter. You know, we're going to find out when Jesus is crucified, like when he's actually on the cross, there are He's actually kind of chatty in John's gospel, which is sort of surprising. (laughs) But in this moment, the aloneness of that, I think, is exactly exactly right. You know, in the synoptic gospels, there's another character here, Simon of Cyrene, who Jesus gets tired and drops Mm. his cross, and Simon picks it up and carries it for him. And so there's this sense of companionship, but also the sense of Jesus can't handle it. Yeah. So... I think, I think we're talking about cruelty of the empire. I think we're talking about aloneness. And I think we're also talking about Jesus is in charge of what is happening here, right? Jesus has said, this is what's going to happen. It has to happen. He has to die this way. 
He -hmm. has dodged questions to get to this point where they Mm -hmm. crucify him. And he's, in John's gospel, able to carry his own cross. He, he's not in need of anyone to help him. I don't know exactly how you put all those strands together, but I think they are all in play here mm-hmm. and, and important in John's image. Bobby, I have a, a question just popped into my head that if, if you feel like it's too far afield, then, then we can just table it for another time, for a rainy day. But I, I hear sometimes in, in the Christian world the phrase like carrying your cross or like yeah. bearing your cross. And yeah. I just described the cross as, you know, you're basically being made to carry the means for your own destruction, yeah. like facilitate your destruction. Yeah. But I don't think that's what's meant by the phrase when it's used co- now. Is that right? Does it mean just sort of like, yeah, bear your burdens? Jesus says in the synoptics, if anyone wants to be my follower, they must take up their cross and follow me. And Christians use that now, like, that's my cross to bear. Yeah, and we, yeah. we mean that like, I drink too much soda, or, <laughs> you know, like, we use it about like, <laughs> silly things about like, oh, like, this is a minor inconvenience to me, it's my cross to bear. But that's not what it meant, right, in, yeah. in the Gospels. And that's not what this means. Sometimes I'll, I'll play with it, like, in a worship setting, and I'll say, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Or pick up your lethal injection needle and follow me. Just because it like, it shifts, like the it's, cross right, has it shakes become, us out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because what that, what Jesus is saying there is exactly what you're saying, which is take up your means of execution at the hands of the empire and let's go do this thing, which mm-hmm. is emphasizing the, the danger of it and yeah. the deathliness of it and the opposition yeah. of the empire. And we lose all of that, m- yeah. many of us, yeah. we, when we use that phrase. That's really helpful. Thank you. And we get this public notice, and we don't get this in any, we get the public notice in the other gospels, but this back and forth, the notice says Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, mm-hmm. and it's written in three languages, Aramaic, mm-hmm. Latin, and Greek. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the objections about that, just any thoughts about that being the label and the multi multilingual nature of it? I mean, it's tempting Well, I find myself trying to figure out sort of what, trying to think about like Pilate's motivation for that, or if it's just, you know, John is sort of really enjoying the irony (laughs) of of this moment. But, you know, even before before we read on about the objections from the leadership, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. That's not... Like it is is this meant to be a slight against the Jews also? Like or was like was it meant mostly to mock Jesus and the idea that, you know, if Jesus had claimed kingship, you know, it sort of really draws out the 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 distance between being a victim of crucifixion and having the power that was imagined that a king would have. But it also seems like it, it could shame the Jews by association that their like most exalted representative, the king, has has died in this way. Yeah, it's complicated by the fact that the Jewish leaders have never said G- Jesus is the king. In fact, they've been no, saying exactly the opposite. It. Like the problem yeah. is he thinks he's a king or the yes. people think he's a king. Yeah. 
the people, as we saw back in chapter 12, have called him the king. And so it's kind of an interesting yeah. question about, you know, there, one way of reading it is just anyone who gets a following that threatens Roman power, this is what's going to happen to you. And mm-hmm. so the fact that you have been called king means you're going to have to die this way. I think it is absolutely meant to humiliate uh, the Jews and, remi- and you know, the peop- just the people, the, the occupied people of the empire that, you know, the empire has the power. Pilate has power. Caesar has power. You do not have power. And so anyone to whom the title king of the Jews is remotely applicable, this is what's going to happen to you. And so, you know, it's, this is a warning for everyone. Like, don't, don't think of yourself in those terms, person of power. Yeah. I'm not sure I a- answered your question, though. No, I, th- I think you, I think you did. I mean, I think it's, I mean, in some ways, it's quite a masterful way to cut down a whole bunch of people who really fundamentally disagree about what's happening here. But it's like insulting and hurtful. I mean, obviously to Jesus, who actually is suffering on the cross, and also to the people who were followers of Jesus and may have believed that he was a king, and also to the people who believe that he was not a king. Because now they're saying, oh, this is your king, and look, he's been mm-hmm. crucified. Like, it really, if I had moments reading this story where I felt like the Jewish community and Pilate were together in some way, at this moment, it becomes very clear to me that they are not. Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. So Pilate here has exerted his authority. He's been a little mushy along the way, like sort of open to being influenced. And then all of a sudden he's like, nope, I've said what I've said. Yeah. And you and I are not the same. Yeah. I think that's right. Right. But I don't think it I don't think it's necessarily that he's making a some kind of wise, insightful statement in support of Jesus's Oh no. You know, or anything like that. I think well, I I wrote a word in my translation that I can't use on a PG. (laughs) (laughs) iTunes will get mad at us. Podcast for for this kind of leadership. But yeah, it just seems a very sort of like flippant insult across the board. Like he really, he's not actually invested in any of this or in any of how this plays out or in what is actually true and what's happening here. He just doesn't, Mm -hmm. he's playing. Yeah. You know, we talked last time about how one reads Pilate. Mm-hmm. I think it was last time. They all kind of run together for me. But yeah. the conversation, the truth conversation, maybe that was two weeks ago. But there, you know, there's a question about whether Pilate is actually like a deeply philosophical person who's interested in the concept of truth and wants to talk about that more with Jesus or whether he's a master propagandist who is discarding the whole yeah. notion of truth. Yeah. I think one can read this moment similarly yep. where Pilate could be saying like, no, I have really understood Jesus is the king, and so I'm labeling him correctly. You don't get it, but I get it. If you read it that way, then John's gospel is excusing the Roman Empire and saying mm-hmm. they, well, well, I guess it's excusing the Roman Empire. It's at least saying the Roman Empire understands. Right. Then there's a question here. of why they did this, but yeah, fine. 
But the other way of reading it is exactly, which is the way I tend to read it too, which is that Pilate is using this label as a way of dismissing everybody, making fun of Jesus, making fun of the Jews, making fun of the religious leaders, Mm -hmm. making fun of everyone who is not Roman because they don't have any power. And he wants everybody to know that that's the way I tend to read it. This is an example of cruelty and just disregard for, for everyone. Yeah. But I do think there's an open, I think it's open to how one reads it. Yeah. I, I now, John, that. of course, means that, you know, there's a, there's a deep and profound truth to what Pilate has posted. Yeah. yeah. According to the Gospel of John, like Jesus is the king of the Jews. And, and the label has gotten it exactly right. Even if nobody meant it that way, you right. know, the label is, Jesus has been labeled correctly. Mm-hmm. Even though probably nobody really thought he was that's in the story so far. What do you make yeah. of the multilingual nature of it? Anything? It's so interesting. I mean, I the whole way that it's described here being, you know, in, in multiple languages so that anyone could read it <laughs> and sort of right near the city so that, yeah. you know, it's this right near the city of Jerusalem at Passover. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a, a bustling scene where everyone can can see this. I'm wondering as I say this, you know, I don't know who spoke which languages. You know, I, I, you know, Jews spoke Aramaic and many of them Greek. I don't know who was speaking Latin. Would that be mostly the Romans? Yeah, I mean, Latin and Greek were the languages of the Roman Empire at this moment. Okay. Basically, the Western Empire still functioned in Latin. The Eastern Empire still functioned in Greek. Okay. And so a, a Roman in Rome would have functioned in Latin. A Roman in Asia would func- have functioned in Greek. Mm-hmm. I think this is a way of saying, like, this is the languages of all the world, even though that's mm. not exactly true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the language of the yeah. Western Empire, the language of the Eastern Empire. And then, you know, Aramaic was the lingua franca of, like, the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Like, that whole region spoke Aramaic at points along the way. So I think that's what it's after is basically saying anyone in the world who is mm-hmm. able to read mm-hmm. could read this label. Mm-hmm. You know, John 3.16 said God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And to me, this captures that. Like, there's a specificity about Jesus that he is the Jewish king. But the mm. global nature of the label says, and he has a broader significance than that. Yeah. So on the mundane level, I think it's so everybody can read. You know, Pilate wants to make sure everybody knows why this guy is crucified. But on the theological level, I think it's saying this Jewish king, this one who came in this specific form, is here on this cross for the whole world. Right. Right. This is a story for the world. This is not just a story for the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so as a way of pulling these two kind of texts together, we've been... Thinking about this idea of king, is Jesus a king? Is he not a king? What kind of king is he? We've been talking about that in different ways today and for a couple of weeks. So at this moment where Jesus is labeled king of the Jews under protest in multiple languages, like, is there, can you bring us any sort of, I don't know if resolution is exactly right, but like, how do you unpack the symbolism of king here at sort of what I think is the culmination of that idea? I think 
the two main ways that I am thinking about kingship at this point in the text are a somewhat traditional one, which you can say is more militaristic or less militaristic, but the idea that like this is a this is a king who's going to deal with human issues <laughs> on the earth and is going to bring peace to the to Israel, to the land, mm-hmm. to the people. And then this idea of kingship as a as a way to overturn like the ultimate the ultimate worry, the ultimate enemy, the ultimate force that is against us, which is death, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that sort of human level and the metaphorical level. And I feel like at this moment in the text, it looks pretty hopeless for both of them. Mm. You know, like this is the king who overcomes death. Well, I mean, I guess he hasn't died yet, but. It's pretty clear where we're headed. (laughs) It seems to be that this is where that's going. And whether you're expecting a military leader or a great negotiator or whatever, issues are, (laughs) there's, there's been no peace. Now there is disagreement within the Jewish people. There is still disagreement between the empire and the Jewish people there's like things are things are not better. Death has not been overturned and peace is not here. So so seeing the word king over that image to me is a really pointedly hopeless. Hmm. At this at this moment I know yeah. I know there's I know there's more to come, but it seems pretty bad. How do you how do you pull it all those different King resonances together in this. Yeah, moment. I, I love what you said, Amy, and I, I think that's ex- I think that's exactly right. And you know, there's a triumphalistic way of being Christian, which many of us inhabit, including myself, from time to time, which I think is not actually at all what the Christian story is inviting us to. And that sort of hopelessness that you're identifying, I think, is super important because. The point seems to be here was the king who came in humility, wielding the power of life over and against the power of death, and he got killed for it. And as near as any of us can tell in this narrative moment, that's the way the story ends. And so if the call of the Christian is to love one another as I have loved you, which Jesus said it was back in John chapter 13, then what that means is, you know, you can't use the power of death in order to defend the right to, like, the power of life. If you come wielding death in order to give life to people, you're really on the side of death, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, if, you have to, if you have to maintain prosperity by, by killing people, you're not really doing the thing. What Jesus has offered is a whole other way of being, which is in self-giving love that for him ultimately results in his death. And, you know, for Christians, I think we ought to expect that it might look much like that for us too, in the eyes of the way that kingship's supposed to work, whatever kind of way you want to frame kingship, it's going to look like failure. And it's only on the other side of the resurrection that this story starts to look different, but we're, but we're not there yet in the narrative. 
and we're not there yet in the living of our daily life either, I think. Mm-hmm. We don't live in the sort of fulfillment of history. We live in the messy in-between space. So I, I think dealing with that hopelessness and the apparent failure and finding a way to say, like, this failure is not actually a failure mm-hmm. and neither is our failure failure, that seems yeah. to me to be the point. And it's it's so easy to lose. Yeah. Well, understandably, we want to go through this part as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know? I was so annoyed that the narrative lectionary made us stay in this, basically in this chapter and a half for like a month. I'm like, oh my goodness, how long can we linger over the trial and crucifixion? But I think that's actually been a good thing. There's a lot of truth in it. Yeah. Amy, I feel like I just jumped the shark by... um, (laughs) saying what I think this text is about and how we ought to be processing it today. So maybe I've already said what I need to say about that. But I'm curious what you would say as you read Mm -hmm. this text and you think about how it connects with contemporary life. Where Where does your head go? My head is going back to some of the conversations we've had about truth and the idea of, you know, Jesus as an embodiment of truth, truth in bodily form, and the importance of of truth in both of our traditions. And I think watching the way that this scene plays out with Pilate and the religious leaders, and, you know, sort of all along the way we've been saying, no one will say what they actually think, you know? <laughs> like, no one, no one will stand up for what they actually think is true. The religious leaders are trying to figure out what, how the empire will respond and like anticipate their response and then sort of preempt their response. And, and Pilate, it seems, is also maybe doing something like that or maybe playing some other kind of games and maybe not even trying to figure out what's really true. And it doesn't work. Like, this is all great, you know, like <laughs> there's this song we sing at, at Purim actually um, and the translation is something like, you know, go ahead and scheme your schemes, but God is with us. You know, like, and that's how all of this is reading yeah. to me now. Like, scheme your schemes. You can do your best to try to outsmart the system, but, like, the truth is going gonna, is gonna to come get you. And here is, you know, just in a political way, I feel like that's how that winds up turning out. Like, they're both sort of trying to, Maybe I shouldn't say they're both because I don't know if Pilate really ever felt vulnerable. I'm not sure. But if the religious leaders ever really felt vulnerable to the power of the empire and were trying to make nice, it did not. You lose control over the narrative and you cannot just align yourself with, with whatever you need to in order to bring about an end that you think will come. You're much better just saying what is true that might also lead to your death. Like it, there's no, there's no way to game the system. So you might as well say what's true. What you think is true, what you genuinely yeah. figure out what you genuinely truly think is true and say that. I love that, Amy. That's so helpful. And you know, in the, in the world of the gospel of John, what is true is love one another as I have loved you. Like what is true is God so loved the world that he gave his son to love to the end. And so I really love that emphasis on say what is true. I think in John, it's also do what is true, which yeah. is 
love each other no matter what it costs. And I think ultimately for John, it's be in relationship with Jesus, who is truth. But I mean, you can get a long way toward what John is after, loving one another in a selfless way without that last step, even, uh, of saying that, you know, if, if you're trying to think about how do you read a gospel in an interfaith way that doesn't require Jesus to have been the son of God. Like mm-hmm. there's something profound, I think there about love one another, that that's what's true. Mm-hmm. We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about who's at fault for Jesus's death. And, you know, John's gospel has been read, as you well know, in lots of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish ways. And the more we read this together, the more that I really think what John is saying is anyone who is committed to the power of death, anyone who thinks that might makes right, anyone who wants to wield power over instead of giving oneself in love to another, that's who's at fault for Jesus's death. Mm. And I, I dare say that's humankind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the point then is that, that it exposes that tendency in all, in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I keep coming back to how Jesus washed Judas's feet at the at the Last Supper, and you know, even even Judas got Jesus to to lay down his life for him. And so, in some ways, like to say, like, look, we're all we all betray that reality or that version of truth of love one another, no matter what it costs. And in the Gospel of John, God's capacity to forgive is is bigger than our capacity to betray. Yeah, I, I think that's an important. A way of reading of reading this gospel. I think that's really right, and I think you know I love that you brought in the washing of Jesus's feet because because one could imagine a case now where like no, of course you can't wash the feet of your enemy because you are trying to bring about a certain outcome. Like you're trying you're trying to force their hand to do yeah. something that you really believe is right. Yeah. But but we don't get to control that. Yeah. It is it's complicated. If you're loving them toward a certain end, yeah, yeah, to manipulate them toward an end, yes, then you are not actually loving them. Yeah, yes. I just because I I just want to add in one more tiny little thought, and it's one of these things that I don't even know if I should say this, but I just have to say it because it came up for me so many times reading the text in preparation for this week. Like you know those optical illusions. I should have brought one shared on the screen with you, but that wouldn't help our listeners. Okay. (laughs) You know, those optical illusions where like, it looks like something is sort of on the top, but then something twists and you can't really tell what is the top of this thing that's being depicted. Like, and it sort of looks like it's like turning around on itself almost and gets very, I don't know, all, all twisty. I, this week in particular, and I think it was the use of Psalm 118 in the other text that is just such a resonant text for me that I, I just started to really feel like like the 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 text that my that 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 I carry as a Jewish person is is being turned around in ways here that ultimately, not even necessarily in this story, but in human history, come out as weapons against against the Jewish people. And it's, you know, even just reading the phrase like Jesus carrying his own cross, like I just have this, this imagery of like we bear this tradition that is ultimately somehow turned around 
against us in the course of history in this way that I don't quite understand and can't quite completely trace. But I just, I don't know. I, I really felt that the pain and the tension of that. And if when I can stay inside the story, it's okay. I understand what's happening inside the story. But when I have these little blips outside the story to human history, it's um, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. So I appreciate I appreciate you and I appreciate people listening who try to offer some some other contexts and other ways to think about these stories. I appreciate your saying that, Amy, and I appreciate your reading this text with us. And, you know, to me, what you're saying is if I stay in the story, it's okay. But once you step out of the story, then look what it's done in history. And to me, there is a message there about the urgency for those of our listeners who are Christians, and especially those who are Christians who proclaim the gospel in some context, like there is a way of interpreting these texts that is not, I don't know if it's not dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as the way the text is often interpreted. And, you know, in keeping with the gospel of John, the whole message of the gospel of John is love each other, right? Yeah. And somehow that gets turned into a text that has been really dangerous for people. And so there is an urgency about good biblical interpretation that tries to make the world more loving and not more dangerous. And this text, as you are rightly saying, has been a text that makes the world dangerous. And and we who have a chance to read it otherwise absolutely need to do that. Thank you for that. And thank you for doing this work all the time, Bobby. All the time. So next time we're going to continue on with difficult texts. Picking up in the very next verse in John 19, 23 to 42. This is our Good Friday special episode. I feel like we've been talking about the crucifixion for six weeks now. On on our special episode, we'll actually talk about the crucifixion text itself. Then we get to move on to Easter and, and some, some other things. Good, good. All right, Amy, thanks so much for being here. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Me thanks too. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time for our special Good Friday episode where we'll be discussing the end of the crucifixion narrative in John 19, 23-42. Until then, keep on digging.